Welcome to Pod of Orcas. I am Justin Cox, and I lead communications for the CDOC Society. Today's story might be the most organic path from one person's playful youth to their professional research that I've ever encountered making this show. We're talking about kelp, and more specifically, we're talking about whether kelp is safe to eat in the Salish Sea, which, of course, includes the Puget Sound. And my guest is Jennifer Hahn, who has a unique and adventurous childhood story, and then later in adulthood, kayaked solo through Alaska's Inside Passage, and documented that in her first book, Spirited Waters. She's the author of Pacific Feast, a cook's guide to West Coast foraging and cuisine in which kelp is featured heavily. When Jenny started teaching classes about kelp throughout this region some years ago, she'd often get asked, is it safe to eat this? And she didn't entirely have an answer. And scientifically, at least, nobody had an answer. The Sea Doc Society's mission is to fund and conduct research in the Salish Sea, and people like Jenny are vital to that mission. So Sea Doc Society raised money through private donors, and that funded Jenny's scientific exploration into whether it was safe or not to eat local kelp. In this conversation, you'll hear us discuss specific chemicals with long names that can sound foreign and scary even. That's a necessary part of science-based research and toxicology. I'd encourage you to listen to this conversation about kelp in the context of all foods, including other leafy greens that we widely consider to be superfoods, essentially. Guess what? You'll find certain levels of contaminants in those food items as well. So just because you hear a word you don't know, don't be scared off. We will put it all in context and make it all super easy to understand. Oh yeah, one more thing. The last part of this conversation is all about Jenny's collaboration with tribes and First Nations, which is nothing short of a model for how to respect the people, wildlife, and environment while doing any kind of work in the Salish Sea, science or otherwise. So here's my conversation with Jenny Hahn, a Western Washington University research associate, teacher, and accomplished author about her recent study published in the scientific journal PLOS One, which you can find for free on the publications tab at cdocsociety.org. And while you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter to stay up on all things Salish Sea. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. Okay, Jenny Hahn, welcome to Pod of Orcas. How are you? Oh, I'm feeling great. Thanks, Justin. Thanks so much for joining me on this Friday. You bet. It could not be a more beautiful, frosty morning with lots of clear skies at night. So it's really a pleasure. So we're talking because you, with Western Washington University, conducted a study that CDOC Society helped fund called Chemical Contaminant Levels in Edible Seaweeds of the Salish Sea and Implications for Their Consumption. What what were you setting out to try and learn in this in this study? What kind of prompted you to to do this? Well, you know, there's been a lot of like a rocket booster interest in in general all over the world as a food source, as well as a number of other things, biofuels. But here in the Salish Sea, what was happening, um, I was teaching workshops for Washington tribes and First Nations on seaweed identification and harvesting and cooking. And inevitably, someone would hold up a piece of seaweed, we'd be on the Strait of Juan de Fuca and say, Jenny or Jennifer, is this seaweed safe to eat? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a tanker going by out there, or there's a 
series of barges and could it possibly have oil on it? What do you think? How much is safe to eat if it is polluted? And I would say that's such a good question. <laughs> that is a great question. I'd say the next workshop a year later in the next workshop. And I just happened to be telling Joe Gatos this and he took it a step farther. He said, okay, you mean to tell me First Nations and tribes are returning to traditional foods. One of these is seaweed in order to revitalize their food culture. And nobody knows the levels of contaminants because it's been 175 years of industrialization. So there, what are these traditional foods that people are returning to have for all the benefits, but also concerns, especially if they have some kind of um, contaminants. And there had been studies on salmon and spot prawns and halibut and so many other foods that are Salish seafoods, but there wasn't any large scale study on Salish seaweeds. That That's an amazing story. That's like the ultimate, like the need for this is demonstrating itself over and over again in just the daily thing you're doing. And I love that story about that encounter with Joe. That's so good. So, all right. So I, I want to come back to the study. We're, we'll get to some of the other things as we come back to the study. Let's get to why, why you, what had you in those classes talking about kelp? What brought you prior to doing research like this? What attracted you to this? And I, I, people heard this in the intro, you, you have, you've published two books and one of them that heavily features kelp Pacific feast, a cook's guide to West coast and foraging and cuisine. What guided you to this, to foraging, to kelp, to all of this? Well, that is a question that goes way back in terms of its answer. And let's go, let's go back. Let's go back. So I was raised by an adventurous father and you know, the short of it is that I lost my mother when I was a kid and my father raised four children, two of them girls, two of them boys, and raised us all like boys. And so we all learned to fish and he wasn't the hunter, so we didn't learn to hunt, but we learned to build houses and weld and all those kinds of things. And so when we would, he felt like travel was the best education he could give us kids so we would go to Maine and we'd pick blueberries. We'd eat what the locals were eating. We'd go to Yellowstone. We'd catch trout. We'd go to Washington. We lived in Wisconsin. So we did all this with our Volkswagen bug camping. But we'd go to Washington and we'd dig, um, oh, golly, what are they called? Uh, the clams that live in the surf. Suddenly, I'm like not remembering what those clams are. It's okay. I'm still I'm still picturing dad and the four kids in the bug. Yeah, dad and the four kids in the bugs and in the bug <laughs> with the bugs. And we'd go up to Alaska and we'd harvest wild vegetables, etc. So I had an association of wild food or what are also traditional foods with these incredibly adventurous family vacations. And eventually I with this kind of upbringing wanted to spend more time in nature alone. So I decided I was gonna kayak down from Alaska solo, spend a lot of time in the wilderness. And of course, this is after years of running a kayak expedition company and kayaking. I, I wasn't a greenhorn by any means. Um, and I realized the risks, but I also realized that to kayak these big chunks of the coast 
is to carry a lot of food. And if I could supplement my dry stores with things that I foraged, then the kayak would be lighter and I'd have fresh fruits and vegetables. So as I came down the Inside Passage, I harvested a lot of seaweed. I ate nori seaweed, uh, one that's called alaria or ribbon kelp. I harvested bullwhip kelp, saccharina or sugar kelp. Um, but my favorite was nori because it's loaded with protein and you pluck it right off the cliffs and you could feel that kind of supercharged mineral and protein kind of boost after just 15 minutes. Very cool. And then I started to meet elders on the Inside Passage that also were harvesting seaweed and were sharing how they were doing it. And with time, uh, through my kayak company, I taught a lot of seaweed workshops. We'd go out for an extended weekend and we'd harvest and cook uh, an eight course meal. We'd start with a seaweed salad. We'd end with a seaweed thickened chocolate ocean pudding that was inside a clam shell with a nut crust and wild berries on top. So you're not actively um, promoting the book right now, but what you just described, that's you get a whole lot of that in the, in Jenny's book. <laughs> well, I tell people, you know, if you ever serve that dessert to someone on a camp trip, they're going to fall in love with you. So just be very careful. It's like a love tonic, that chocolate ocean <laughs> pudding. Um, yeah. So I just seemed to wrap seaweed into my life over and over again. And with time, um, after Pacific Feast came out, one of my cousins who worked for the Jamestown Sklalem tribe, Sklalem tribe, said, hey, cousin, come on over and teach a workshop. And that was where the workshops took off. I taught, I said, that's great. I'd love to teach workshop. You can't pay me a thing. I want to just give something back. And we did this workshop and it was so successful. It was with kids and their parents. And we wrapped a kelp around salmon and grilled it. And we made again, all these other dishes. And that started the interest of other tribes asking me to also lead workshops. So that is when the question started to arise. Now, when that question arose, I was actually in, uh, so Joe, Joe wrote up a wonderful pilot kind of uh, study and figured out how much this thing might cost. I had no idea how high, how expensive toxicology studies are. Hmm. And that's probably why there are so few of them. Okay. So when I, well, let's see, I'm getting a little bit lost here. I'm just thinking I shopped a proposal around for a long time. And it was such a great amount of money. None of the tribes and nations had that kind of money available at that time. And that's where donors came in. And I'm just so grateful to CDOC. Just really grateful to CDOC. Um, I know I know that it's one CDOC Society is very excited and happy about. It's, it's, CDOC Society is grateful to you, I guess, is the way to put that. <laughs> um, what was your affiliation, affiliation with Western Washington University? How did that come to be? Well, at the time Pacific Feast came out, a lot of, and I always think this is how writing books is. You write a book and suddenly doors open up that you could never, ever have imagined. And I mean, I'm sure the same is true with filmmaking or writing a blog. But once you get your book out, suddenly 
Western Fairhaven College called me up and said, hey, will you come teach? And I was like, you know, I don't have a master's. I mean, I don't even, I don't have a PhD and I don't have a master's. They're like, yeah, but you've taught for years and years and years. And you just choose what you want to teach. And I thought, well, I want to teach about wild food. So I teach a five credit wild food class at Fairhaven College. I've been teaching there 12 years. And that's Fairhaven College is a college within the larger Western Washington University campus. So that is like my favorite class in the world to teach just about. Um, and as I was a, I don't know, they call them teaching professors at Fairhaven. I was a teaching professor and I um, got this call from Joe and he says, hey, Jenny, the funding is available. Would you like to do this project? And I thought, oh my gosh, of course, of course. <laughs> Never mind. I tossed another book aside that I was writing and jumped into this because that is my style. It's like you kind of go with the doors that open up. And and, I, and I'll tell you, it was a tough, I, I knew I wanted to do the study. I absolutely knew I wanted to do the study. The timing was a little challenging because my father was in hospice. I was writing a book about him and uh, welding our family back together. And after my mother died in this accident, and it was a very, it was a book that I'd set aside already. And this is all side story that you can. No, no, but that's good on you for, I mean, the way most people are is push toward forcing the door open that you have on your mind, but the ability to kind of go with what, what the world is presenting you is a good skill to have. Oh, it is. You know, and what I did was I, after I went to Joe, I hung up the phone and I felt that whole book just kind of crumble again. And I thought, but I do want to do this and I don't want to have a regret because this door won't stay open. I knew it won't stay open. And I immediately called my father who's in hospice and I said, dad, I've had this amazing opportunity. Sea Doc Society would like to fund a seaweed research project in Salish Sea seaweeds. And I knew, you know, he doesn't know what the Salish Sea is. He knows Puget Sound, but you know, and I said, but I'm going to learn to do a scientific study, which I've wanted for a long time, but this means I need to set the book aside for maybe two years. And he, and I know in hospice, you live six months. Typically that's your kind of like time that they figure that they're going to give you support for. Yeah. And I'm talking two years. So I realize he's not going to see the completion of this book. He might not have anyways, but mm. coming from the depression era of um, not so many opportunities, he was born in 1920. He said, Oh, Jenny, this is great. I mean, just think of it. You can work at the university as a teacher. You can go up to Alaska. You can work as a wilderness guide. You can write books. And now you're going to learn scientific research. This is wonderful. And I just felt that that's my dad. That is my dad that's through and through. Really, really amazing. And I, I just said, but you know, I'll have to set the book aside. And he said, you have the stories. You've already recorded them for several years. Several years. And the book is going to get written. And I, tears are just streaming down my eyes. And then I quickly called my book agent and also told her how I was shifting now from the book to scientific research. And she said, are you going to do this on your own? I said, I think I'm going to go to graduate school. She said, well, I'll write you a letter of recommendation. So my support system just went from one stream to another. It's like, you know, a little a slide came down and blocked that river for a little while. And zoom, we went off in another direction, knowing I'd come back and that would be clear. 
Gosh. I just didn't think it would be seven years later. (laughs) That's the surprise. That is also, that is also tends to be a way things work in the world, I guess. But um, so, I mean, you talked about people in these classrooms having questions about whether it's safe to eat kelp. What, what kind of is the answer to to that question? New, I know that it's nuanced and it's not just a concrete, simple thing, but like, what's that conversation like? Well, you know, the thing that was surprising in the study is we found that there were levels of some chemicals that exceeded what the EPA's health screening levels are. And we looked very specifically at a group. We looked at a group of six focal chemicals out of this 160 plus chemicals we looked at, but we looked at PCBs and something called benzoapyrene, which is, and this is going to sound like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, but it Mm -hmm. is a polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon. It comes from oftentimes uncombusted fuel. So when you're driving your car around and it's belching out stuff from the tailpipe, that has PAHs in it. And one of those PAHs is benzoapyrene. And forest fires also can release benzoapyrene. So it's got natural and unnatural, natural and human-based sources. Um, So we looked at benzoapyrene, also some heavy, some metals. One was cadmium, another mercury. We looked at lead and we looked at arsenic. And so based on those six, we found that PCBs could be problematic at some sites. They could pose a risk to human health when you look at the amount that's consumed of seaweed that's what's called um, a dose of seaweed. Like you sit down at a table and how much seaweed do you eat? That is like a serving or a dose. And that is only five grams dry weight. That's like equivalent to about a sheet or two of nori, depending how the nori is made. Nori is what's wrapped around sushi sushi kind of um, rolls. So when you look at it wet, it's about almost a cup of loosely packed seaweed. When it's dried, it's like a quarter cup because seaweed really gets small. It's just mostly moisture. Anyways, the point of it is that most people don't consume seaweed every day. If you did consume five grams of seaweed a day from some of these sites, you would be above a particular screening level for the EPA for it's called the cancer slope factor. But in general, most of the sites were not problematic. This is a line from from not necessarily the study, but from some of the communications that came out from the study. But Fortunately, most contaminants occurred at levels too low to be of concern for human health. But so if you had what you're describing, if you had this certain kind every day at this certain site, you would be above levels technically. But that that the takeaway from that should not be that seaweed broadly is unsafe to eat. That's correct. Most people eat seaweed as a condiment or as one ingredient in say a soup or a stir fry, most people don't sit down and eat a seaweed salad every single day. But the point of it all is, is that seaweeds are really mineral dense and nutrient dense. You don't need to eat a lot to get the benefits of them in terms of their nutritive benefits. They have a lot of fiber too. 
And so they really are best used as kind of one ingredient in something. Um, we also found in the study, seaweed contaminants change over the season. So you could have one level of um, cadmium or arsenic, and it could change from June to September in the seaweed harvesting season. And in that knowledge, that's not new. That's something people have said in the literature for a long time, that seaweed varies in its kind of contaminant level and its nutrients over seasons with salinity changes, um, depending if there are other seaweeds competing for the minerals in the area, then the seaweeds have a limited capacity to sometimes build in the minerals. Um, although some seaweeds like brown seaweeds can just pack things in over and over again, where green and reds can't do that, but yeah. it's very complex. So the answer I would say is that in general, what you said is so correct that we have found that for many sites, it's not a concern at all. And when you eat seaweeds in a small amount and you're not eating them every day, it's generally not problematic. Like we're talking specifically about seaweeds right now. Can't you take a couple steps back out of this study and probably say that same statement about a lot of foods, a lot of things, eat them in, in high quantities every day and that might pose a problem, eat them in moderation. In I, I don't want to like, I don't want to like project that onto the study results, but it wouldn't be good for me to eat a cut of red meat every single day of my life. I know that. Well, and I think that, Justin, that's a really interesting and important thing to reemphasize. I spoke with a wonderful toxicologist, Peter, Dr. Peter Ross. And at that time he was with the Vancouver Aquarium. Now I think he's teaching at one of the universities in Vancouver. Quick thing. Peter Ross is an alum of this podcast. We interviewed him. He was <laughs> well, great. He's wonderful. He told me early on, Jennifer, whatever you do, don't scare tribes and First Nations away from their traditional foods by telling them all about the contaminants and not also that the other part of this message that's important to get to the public is that all foods have contaminants in them. And Salish seafoods like salmon and Dungeness crab also have PCBs. And so while well, we found them in seaweed, they're in all these other foods as well. Now they're also in grocery store foods. And we looked at commonly consumed foods from the grocery store through a study that's called um, the market basket study. And it's something that the USDA puts out. And basically they take a grocery cart and they run it through a big store and they put in all these products. They go back to the lab and they run them through all these different um, tests and they tell you how many, how much lead or how much cadmium or um, PCBs are in certain foods. And what they found out, and this is what Peter Ross said is all foods are polluted. And we looked at an equal, like a portion of say um, a well done steak and a portion of seaweed. And the portion of well done steak is got way more PAHs than seaweed. I just think that's massively important context for, it's not just a, I mean, you have to place it in the wider context of what's in all foods to understand what it means to talk about certain levels of things in seaweed specifically. It's just, you just need it. Because if you just say, 
certain levels, blah, blah, blah. I, I think, I think it's easy for a person on the, on the receiving end of that message to just be like, that's got some chemicals in it sometimes to certain degrees. I'm all set on that. I think that can scare a person off if it, if the, if it doesn't get placed in its context, you know? Absolutely. And I think we as seaweed eaters and we as just food consumers in general, we haven't gotten the whole story about all these other foods. And that's what surprised me is that, you know, you could look at things like kale and Brussels sprouts, and they could have higher levels of PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, than seaweed, in part because these things hang out in a field a long time with their lovely, you know, round Brussels sprout bodies or the leafy folding kind of uh, tall, large leaves of the kale. And PAHs are in the air. They're mm. tiny little particles that land on these plants and they just end up, you know, making a little bit of a PAH kind of like residue on the outside. And so it's good to rinse your vegetables, you know, <laughs> because they have PAHs on. So kale had more PAHs, a serving of kale done by the um, market basket study than the seaweeds we found. And yet how many people, they don't, they, don't, they don't blink twice. They just think kale's so healthy, I'm gonna eat a lot of it. Yeah. So it's a matter of risks, benefits, amounts, um, You know, going easy and balancing all these things, eating a breadth of diet. Uh, seaweeds have got phytochemicals in them that are anti-cancer, anti, they've been associated with lowering the risk for um, Alzheimer's, um, cancer, uh, obesity, heart disease, so they have things that some other land vegetables do not present. Yeah. So seaweed has a lot of gifts in it as well as, you know, you open the whole package, just don't eat, eat it every day necessarily yeah, yeah. from food sites. Pod of Orcas is created by the Sea Doc Society, a nonprofit based on Orcas Island in the Salish Sea. Our science-based conservation work is made possible by donors like you, and that includes the creation of this here podcast. If you'd like to support our work, you can go to cdocsociety.org slash donate and make a one-time or recurring monthly donation. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we something that's kind of been in the background of all this and is a huge, a, a big part of it that we haven't fully gotten to yet is is the involvement of tribes and First Nations with this as a traditional food and as it kind of seems like from the outset before uh, from the outset of this project all the way through the end of it, it seems to me like you deliberately made that a, a kind of built in part of the project. Can you tell me about the involvement of tribes and First Nations in this in this work or how you communicated with them or or anything along the way? Yeah, you know, because of the workshops that I had taught and one of them I co-taught, I had my seaweed sisters and my seaweed sisters come from the Muckleshoot tribe, the Squaxin Island tribe, Lower Elwha, um, Lummi Nation. And so I should say Lower Elwha, Elwha Clallam, the Lummi Nation. And I was very inspired by their work in traditional foods and teaching traditional foods, bringing that revitalization of Coast Salish food culture to each individual community kitchen and bringing those foods in 
to serve the elders. And so I thought, okay, I need your help, seaweed sisters. I, I would like to harvest these seaweeds and, and test them out. They're like, yes, yes, we'll do it. We'll help you. And pretty soon they started to open doors to more and more tribes. And Joe was like, you know, hey, you know, why not do the wholesalish sea? I mean, why just do the lower Salish Sea? Why not do cross-border too? And so I had these connections on the other side of the border because some of these people had also come to workshops that were sponsored by on the U.S. side of the Salish Sea, but I had Canadian nation members come in to the workshops. So the door kept opening up the inside passage until there were 18 tribes and First Nations that all said, yes, um, we'd be very interested in your study. Please come and collect seaweed. And some of the tribes and First Nations would meet me at the beach and we'd go out in a boat or we'd hand sample um, of the 43 sites, 21 of, I think 20 of these were all harvested with First Nations and tribes. Nice. And of the other sites, I just go out in my kayak or be on foot myself, and I might meet a tribal member at the beach, and they'd say, you can harvest between this spot and that spot because there are some sacred sites on either side. So we just want you to be respectful. Yeah. But all I could say is it was extremely important to me to do this in a sensitive way, to be a white scientist and to be going into the unseated traditional territories of all these tribes and nations without their permission, without their um, kind of knowledge and without a little bit of their input is not the direction I wanted to go. I wanted to go in a way that um, was a, what do I want to say, a very respectful way that I would do with my own grandparents if it was their land. Anyways, I wear all the time when I was working a small cedar basket around my neck and in it has seaweed from one of the chiefs. And he gave me this seaweed early on in the study. And it this basket like hangs over my heart when I am working on the like one of the things that happened once after we harvested the seaweed and it went off to NOAA and to the UC Davis toxicology lab and up to Axis lab up in Sydney after the seaweeds went to these labs and then the results started to come back. We would look at these results, um, NOAA and Joe and the people on my master's uh, research committee, we'd look at these results together down in Seattle, and I would have this basket by my heart because this study pushed the envelope of my knowledge so far beyond <laughs> a wilderness guide writer, okay? You know, I'm a wilderness guide writer teacher, but suddenly I have to understand the language of toxicology and also um, understand studies that are done all over the world on these chemicals so I can compare the chemicals in Fucus in Greenland and France <laughs> and further south because it's further south but compare all that to the Salish Sea seaweeds and so the learning curve was like 
an arrow to the sun. And it's really, it's really impressive and admirable. It's super oh, cool. oh, I had my times when I just wanted to just cry, but I knew I wouldn't give up. I and- mean, to be, to be doing that's hard, you know, all of that's hard. And, and it's like a little bit out of your, you're in a little bit deeper water than what you've worked, been in, in your past. And then the sort of part where you're, you're respecting this process so much and respecting the tribes and first nations in it, and not just kind of parachuting in doing your science and coming out. It's, you start to understand why that's seven years. Yeah. It's like community-based research takes time and community-based research where you share the results with the tribes and first nations takes more time too, but it's essential. And it's, it's how science should be almost every place across the United States and Turtle Island and North America, all that we are standing on oftentimes unceded traditional lands. And when we do this research, there are nations that this was their and is their traditional territory still. And so to get the people involved who in particular, when you're working with a traditional food, like I am to get their permission to go ahead and share the results and then share them with the public is not only respectful, it's just, it's almost a, I don't know what I want to say. It is the way that the heart and the mind work together on research. And it's not about getting a publication out. It's not about getting, um, you know, the light shine on you. I mean, there were so many community members. There's probably like over 75 people that worked on this minimally. And I could never have done that, this study without the 18 tribes and First Nations, without all the people at NOAA, without the help from CDOC, without the help from Western Washington University, um, the Border Policy Research Institute. It's like, I remember hearing, it takes a village to write a book. Well, man, oh man, it takes a huge geography to pull off a study like this and many, many um, competent minds and hearts. And so wearing this beautiful basket with the seaweed in it from one of the chiefs, as I was moving towards sharing the results, I remember calling up Jamie Donatuto and saying, can you advise me on how a white settler should do research in Indian country? And she said, I would be happy to. Do you really want me to tell you how to how it should be done? I mean, how we would hope it would be done? I said, yes, don't hold anything back. And so with her advice, I shaped how I would share the results. So Jamie said, one of the things you need to include is a PowerPoint with an emphasis on pictures, with your voice in the background, with non-scientific language, so that it can be understood by people that are toxicologists, but <laughs> by all of us, you know, that speak in normal language, typically uns- unspecialized language. And you should have a summary, a written summary in non-scientific language that might only be three pages long. And then you would have the scientific article draft. This would be something that you put on a thumb drive and you have all the raw data. That's the other thing. You give the tribe or the nation back the raw data on a PowerPoint, excuse me, on a thumb drive. Right. And if you don't have a thumb drive, then you you do it over a link online is what I ended up doing. That is what you send, but that's not always what with COVID, it's very challenging to get everybody's attention. So just sending people a link 
is not sometimes enough. And so what I would do is I would offer to do a presentation. And so I did a number of presentations to chiefs and council, sometimes to a number of people within the, like the departments of natural resources within the tribes. Sometimes they were tribal scientists. Sometimes they were um, fisheries folks that had helped me harvest the seaweeds, but I would share the results on Zoom too. And that was not done with every single nation or tribe, but it was done with those that had requested it. I was always very grateful when people would say, thank you for devoting so much time to answering this question. We have been thinking about growing seaweeds and this this will help us. Or just thank you for doing this. We eat these traditional foods. We're not eating so much seaweed yet, but we want to eat more. Now we feel more comfortable. All those kinds of words affirmed for me that seven years, it's not about the time you do the study in the best way possible, given the respectfulness that you want to have at the forefront. Yeah. I think it's really amazing because it's not only the way you went about it, which is clearly, as I talk to you right now, um, with all of the like you, you could hear your your childhood and your exploration, your solo exploration, exploration and foraging. You could hear all of these things in it and your own curiosity. And you could tell that that guided you through how you went about doing it. But also the study itself, like science is often very iterative with very small little incremental things that are part of a lar- answering larger questions and everything. This kind of straight goes at answering a question that just didn't have an answer to it. It, it, it feels very... It provides, I shouldn't say it provides just one simple answer, but it if you have all these people asking whether they can eat forage and eat this food that's readily available and potentially healthy and nutritious in ways, you know, people don't know what the answer to your question is to then set out and get that. Very awesome. I love it. Oh, well, again, you know, I just feel like I got to give something back and for all the times I've paddled and gathered seaweed or walked the beach. I mean, my favorite thing in the world is either paddling by a a low tide cliff with all the sea life on it or swimming next to it or walking on a beach. And I think all that time gathering seaweeds over so many decades, eating them, reading ethnographic texts, talking to elders on my journeys, I wanted to give something back. And I thought giving something back was the workshops. I actually thought, okay, I'll teach workshops. That's a way to get back. I had no idea the lead to the bigger project that was really giving back, which was the study. Very cool that you did it. Very um, honored for CDOC Society to play a role in having it happen. Um, Is there anything that it feels like I haven't asked that you want to make sure and say? Well, I think when people do go out to gather seaweed, they should know how to cut the seaweed in a way that you cut it in the meristem, which is where it continues to grow like hair after you walk away. And you don't just go out and cut it in a clear cut fashion either. You have to cut it here and there. And you want to have a license that allows you to collect 10 pounds wet weight per day. Uh, and you buy that license, it's not very much for a state resident. It might be like it's $17 or so. And seaweed can sell for up to $60 a pound dry weight. So it's not like it's expensive. 
um, to buy the license. But it's just very important, I think, that people harvest in a way that also respects the laws. In the introduction to your book, you have um, the line, First Nations managed the wilderness like a garden, a sacred place that required caretaking, respect, and ceremonies of gratitude. Reciprocity was not a choice, it was a given, which is a spirit I can hear in all of this. Where can people find you and and a little more about Pacific Feast, your book? Oh boy, let's see. Well, I know I teach for North Cascade Institute a seaweed class every year. And unfortunately, it only has like 20 spaces. <laughs> and I am revising Pacific Feast uh, right now. So um, it is out of print right now. But I am one of these people. How do you get a hold of me? I mean, goodness gracious, I'm kind of hermiting right now because you, I'm working on a book. You don't have to have people get a hold of you. There's no, there's no <laughs> need. <laughs> Write your book. But oh, so I would say in a, you know, there would be more books coming out and more workshops. And it's it's something I hope to do into my 90s. You know, I hope to teach for decades to come still. I'm not sure if that helps. That does. Yeah, no, that's great. And we'll make sure to link to the study and some communications about it in the description of this show when it goes live. Um, Jenny, it was really great talking to you. Oh, Justin, it was a total pleasure. I love seaweed and you're such a wonderful host. Oh, I appreciate that. I wish I could take the kelp pickles that are in our fridge and put them through the <laughs> recording Zoom and you could have one slide onto your table. Uh, you know, I wish I wish that could happen too. Maybe maybe we'll have that opportunity someday in the in the months and years ahead. Sounds wonderful. Awesome. Mm-hmm.